All right, well, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 13 for those of you who like to follow along in the Scripture. And so uh, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. But before we get into it, when I uh, graduated from university, some of you know I have a degrees. My bachelor degrees, my undergrad degrees, are in agriculture. I kind of come from this agricultural background. My, both my grandfathers were farmers. Uh, my dad was a professor before he retired of ag economics. And uh, I went into agriculture because I was expecting to be a missionary. And, uh, and I had been told before you can give uh, spiritual bread, you have to be able to give physical bread. And I took that very literally, and I got degrees in agriculture, which I've never really used. But right after I finished from school, when I graduated last century from university, uh, my wife and I, we had about six months we had to wait before we went to the Peace Corps. And so I got a job with this company called Asgrow, which is a seed company. And what's important about a seed company in, in the story I'm going to tell is that what they would do is, is they, would, they would develop uh, certain varieties of seeds, vegetable seeds. Then they would contract farmers to, to plant these in their fields, you know, increase the yields. And then they would take what the farmers had planted and that would go into like your little packages. If you buy seeds at a store to plant in your garden, those little seeds in there, uh, that's the most uh, profitable way for companies to sell seed because those that little bit in there you pay a euro for and it costs them probably less than a penny actually to uh, to produce it. They would also sell seeds to vegetable uh, comp companies that would grow the grow the vegetables and then can them and, and for for use. So because of this, the seed had to be very very clean. There couldn't be any genetic uh, you know mess ups in the seed. And more importantly, there couldn't be other types of seed mixed in. And so I got this job, and, and uh, my job was just a, I was just a worker drone. I was at this uh, warehouse where the trucks would come in, and we would unload the trucks, and we'd put the seed in these things called, called elevators behind you. You can see that. And because of the way that, that, that uh, peas are, are harvested and, and the seed that I was working, the, the, comp the warehouse I was working at, they brought in field peas. Uh, you can see in the picture here that peas, the, the combine, the tractor has to be right on the dirt because they only grow about, you know, uh, a couple centimeters off the ground. And so as a result, uh, you can probably imagine that it brings in a lot of soil and brings in a lot of uh, sometimes stones and that sort of thing. And so the, the farmers can set their machines. It's called a combine. They can set it to, uh, I don't know why that happened. Anyways, they can set it to separate out the, uh, the stuff that's in there. Uh, and, uh, and they're supposed to, and you can see on the back there, if you look in the picture, it looks like there's a kind of this cloud, this yellow cloud. Because what's inside the machine really is a bunch of fans and sifters, and it, and it separates out the grain. And at the top of it, that little pile you can see, that's the clean grain that's at the top. And so this can be set, you know, in, in different ways for different crops. And some farmers, because they want every single penny to come out of the field, they would set it so that there'd be a lot of trash and a lot of dirt still in the seed. And so we were supposed to tell them uh, when, we, when they brought it to the warehouse in kind of a gentle way, you know, hey, you know, did you leave any of the seed? You know, did you bring any seed or did you just bring in the dirt? You know, we're supposed to say things like that to kind of let them know they need to clean up their, clean up what they're bringing into the, the warehouse. Well, one time, this crop came in, this truck came in, and it was just, 
infested with wild mustard seed. And wild mustard is, is a, a difficult plant if you get it in your field because it just takes over the field. It grows very quickly. It has thick, ropey vines. And what can happen is, as, as you can see right on there, that sometimes these vines will get mixed into the machinery and actually break down the machinery because it's like rope. It's just taking like rope and wrapping it around. Finally, it stops everything. It can be a big problem. Well, this guy, this, this crop came in, and it was just, if you put your hand in there and pulled it out, you had like a few peas, which was the principal crop, and then it was just a bunch of black, tiny seeds, and that was the, the wild mustard, and it was all over the place. And so we, we told the guy, you know, the, the, the driver of the truck was the, the son of the farmer, you know, we, we, we did what we were supposed to do, kind of a little bit of a jab, you know, telling, you know, we're not going to pay for the mustard, we're only paying for the peas, you understand that, right? And uh, the kid was kind of upset, He's like, yeah, whatever. Well, later on, to make a long story short, we found out that the farmer, his field was just, like I said, it was just overrun with wild mustard. And he could barely get his machine through. And he was really angry with the company because he thought, he thought that the company had sold him seed that already had the weeds in it. And so he was sure that it was the company's fault that, you know, he had this infestation of mustard seed. And the company, you know, of course, was like, you know, we didn't, we have no idea. We, we make sure everything was clean before we give it out for them to grow it. And so they would, they would you know, like, we didn't do this. And then our boss said, you know, you need to stop telling this guy, you know, they need to clean up their field because they're really angry with us. We're like, we're just doing what you told us to do. He's like, not in this case, because there was a lot of tension between this farmer and, and the company because of this. Meanwhile, I was just kind of fascinated by the whole mustard seed thing in the first place. You know, for me, I felt like I was having like several parables of Jesus all coming together at the same time, playing themselves out right in front of me. I had, you know, I had the wheat and the, and the, and the weeds, you know, the wheat and the tares, which actually is the, the parable we're looking at today, you know, living out in front of me. I had the mustard seed I could see. And in fact, I took a bunch of these mustard seeds and I, I glued them to little cards and gave them to my friends and I wrote on them, Jesus said, faith this size can move a mountain. And so to me, it was just kind of a fascinating, you know, you know coming together of, of Jesus' parables. And this picture here, the, the, the guy, he's holding a mustard seed. That's actually a big one. Most of them are about half that size. They're tiny, the mustard seed. And on top of that, we had the drama where the farmer was angry with the company, thinking that somehow the company had sabotaged his crop, which I don't believe that they did. The company had no reason to do that. But all these dramas were playing out in the same time. And so I found, I've always kind of found the, these, these particular parables we're looking at uh, interesting because in a way, I saw them lived out in real life as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we're coming to the center part of Matthew. And as you know, as I've shared with you in the past, the way Matthew often structures the, the Gospel, his particular Gospel, is he'll, he will put into the center of a teaching kind of his main point. And so and then he'll, and he does this, he does these kind of couplets throughout the Gospel of Matthew. An example was just a few weeks ago when we talked about the sower and the seed. You know, he, Jesus tells the parable, then there's some teaching in the middle, and then he explains it. And the way that Matthew's set up, you see this kind of coupling throughout his gospel. Uh, 
And usually in the center is, is really the main point that he wants us to get at. And he does this also, this coupling throughout the entire gospel. In the center of Matthew, which we're starting to go through now, are several parables about the kingdom of God. And this is really an indication to us that this is what Matthew finds to be the, the, the real centerpiece of Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God. And he places them in the middle of the gospel. So we're, we're beginning to ease into that now as we uh, look at the scriptures. So today we're looking at this technique that Matthew uses again. He follows the same pattern. He tells a parable. Then there's, then there's several parables in the middle, in this case parables. And then he explains it at the bottom end. And we're going to do what we did the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at the parable and the explanation first. Then next week we'll look at what's in the middle. So this is starting in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 53. We'll go ahead and read the whole passage. But today we're only going to be looking at the actual parable and its explanation. Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Okay, that ends that parable. Then he goes into another. Then he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through all the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. The disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. He will throw them into the fiery furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus goes on to explain this kingdom of heaven uh, concept later on. He continues with a bunch of parables, but we're not going to get into those until a couple weeks down the road. If you, and if we were to take this section of Scripture and break it down, you'll see that you know, he uses this couplet thing. He starts 
for example, with the parable of judgment. There's three basic types of parables in the Bible. Parables of judgment, parables of growth, and parables of pervasiveness, just ubiquitousness, uh, being every place at the same time. And so he tells first the parable of judgment, which, we, which he then later explains. Then he tells the parable of growth, the kingdom growth, like a mustard seed growing, and, and, just, and mustard goes very fast, and it's very thick, and you get a lot out of that little seed. Then he tells the parable of pervasiveness. The kingdom of God is like yeast that is working through the dough. It has an effect on society, even though it cannot be seen at some points, it affects the overall uh, health of the society. And then he gives an explanation about why they teach in parables. It's shorter than the one he gave uh, that is given between the sower and the seed, and then he explains the parable. So you can see how the structure stays in the same place throughout Matthew. So we're going to be, like I said, we're going to be looking at the parable, first of all, of the weeds and the wheat and the explanation. That's what we're looking at this week. But before we get into that, we need to define a few terms. And one of the terms we need to understand is what is the kingdom of heaven? When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, what is he talking about? Uh, is he talking about what it's going to be like after we die? Is he talking about the afterlife? Is he talking about what it's going to be like after he returns? What is he talking about? Well, if you look at the parables, it would seem that the kingdom of heaven, at least in the case of these parables where he talks about it being you know, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a man that plants his field and these weeds grow. The kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that works its way through dough. It seems that he's talking about the kingdom of heaven is something that is here on earth before the final judgment, before Christ returns. It's something that's going to be growing quickly. It's going to have effect on many levels of society and life throughout the world. Some places it won't even be acknowledged as having an effect, but it will have had an effect and this being the case, most people believe what Jesus is referring to here is the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about just this, any buildings like this, but this, this kingdom of God that has no borders, that has no particular people group, it has no particular language. It's, it's across people groups, it's across languages, it's across cultures, and it works its way into these cultures. And some, it affects more deeply than others, but its effect has been seen throughout the world. And when you talk about the church... Man, church history makes the Game of Thrones look like puppet theater. And sometimes that's kind of a sad thing to say because church history has within it epic heroism, but it also has within its story vile greed. It has inspiration and courage, but it also has cowardice within it and self-centeredness. You know, the church essentially took over the largest empire at the time, the Romans, without raising a sword. And it has outlasted every empire ever since. It's been, been, it's been the bringer of hope and freedom around the world, while at the same time painfully contradicting itself, painfully contradicting its own message by colluding with sin. And I've often said, and it's no exaggeration, that the miracle of the church is that it has survived humanity. It has survived us and kind of the craziness that we bring into it at times and the sin that we've brought into it at times. And the, and the church is always in this constant state of rediscovering itself and its mission. And sometimes that rediscovery of itself and its mission is like a huge turning point in history, like we talk about the Reformation, which took place in the 15, 16, 1700s, uh, most in Europe. The United States was pretty much established because of the Reformation and people looking for uh, religious freedom. 
But it also takes place even in smaller things. And, and, and you'll, you'll, even to this day, there's always people out there saying, ah, the way the church is doing things now, is it right? It needs to get back to its roots. And there's kind of this re- reforming of it. One of the movements going on now, which is fine, it, but it's kind of a different type of way of expressing church is the house church movement. And this has been going on for the last 20 years where people just meet in homes. They don't really meet like this. And they, and they really kind of live life together. It's sort of a, a different way the church is rediscovering itself, re-expressing uh, itself. And you have different ways. Any period of history has different ways of expression. And the miracle of it is that the Holy Spirit of God is able to use this, this thing called the church with our, with our deep imperfections and still affect the world. And so this, this parable then, when Jesus talks about, he, you know, he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a man who sowed good seed in his field. We don't need to go through the whole thing again because I just read it. But during the time of Christ, it's kind of interesting that the Romans actually felt they had a law that dealt with what Jesus is talking about here, which was agricultural sabotage. Uh, because people would try and fight against the Roman Empire's influence by attacking uh, the food sources. And they would actually, you had people, zealots or terrorists, or, and not just in Jesus, not just in Palestine, but throughout the Roman Empire, that would do this. They would sow weeds into the fields so that the Romans, it would, it would begin to undercut the, the stability of the food supply in the Roman Empire. And so there's actually in Roman law issues that deal with this very thing. And, uh, and the crop that they used to call back there was called darnel, that they, that's, that they would throw into the fields. And darnel is really a type of rye. Uh, and because wheat and rye are both grass, they're, they're a type of grass, you can't really tell the difference until, as the, as the scripture says, till the head forms. And when the head forms, then you can see the difference between uh, this is wheat and this is this ryegrass called darnel. And the problem with darnel is that it's very susceptible to a certain type of fungus that if you eat the wheat mixed with this, this grain that has this fungus, it could be fatal. It's also a hallucinogen. Uh, it can, you might see you know, a lot of visions before you croak because uh, it also, it's also can cause that. Ergot is the name of the fungus that can get in there. And so this is, this is what Jesus is explaining. And then when he talks to them about the parable, you know, he makes it clear. He says, uh, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. So Jesus lays out every player, who's, and everything has a very specific connection. The, the field is the world. The harvesters are the angels. And then he says, the Son of Man, uh, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. He will throw them in the fiery furnace. They will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will, sun, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is called a parable of judgment. And it's pretty easy to see why it's called a parable of judgment, right? It's a, a judgment that takes place at the end of the age. And the meaning of the parable is pretty clear. Jesus says that uh, in the end, there's going to be those who follow the ways of righteousness and those who follow the ways of sin, and there's going to be a judgment. And this parable kind of speaks to the hearts of people that feel like the world is a very unfair place. You might want to know, well, why does Jesus even feel like he needs to explain this parable? You have to remember at the time when he's explaining this, he's talking to the people who are on the bottom of the social ladder because they're, they're being oppressed by the Romans 
And on top of that, he's, he's talking to folks who are even going against what the Pharisees were teaching as far as the, the local faith goes. So he's dealing with people who are on the bottom and who may be looking around wondering, where is God? Where is the justice of God? It's kind of like people today, and you may have run into it uh, in your workplaces or among your families who would say, well, where is your God during this COVID-19 thing? Where is he? Where is God during a tsunami? Where is God during these times? Of, why do the, the rich prosper and the poor suffer? Where is your God of justice? If you've not heard that out loud, then you're not listening because that, those questions are floating out there all the time. Christians and non-Christians can look around the world and say, this is not just. This is not fair, which is a big deal here in Germany, things being fair. And the answer to that, it's a fallen world and life isn't fair. And it's not an uncommon feeling. Habakkuk, who is this prophet in the Old Testament, which we read the, the scripture from him today, the whole book of Habakkuk starts with this complaint towards God, where he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous and the, so that justice is perverted. This parable is kind of an answer to this complaint. This parable on its, on its most basic level is saying, God knows that it's not fair. God knows that it looks like evil is winning. God is not blind to this. But we are in a world that is fallen. And in this fallen world, Satan has been allowed a lot of leeway. In fact, he's called the prince of this world. Have you ever wondered why when Jesus was being tempted in the desert, how could Satan have the audacity to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just bow down and worship him? It's because Satan has that kind of control in this world. He has the rights to say, well, I can give you all this. I can give you everything the world wants to offer. He is the prince of the world. And sometimes for us and for people around the world, even non-Christians who will see the injustice will wonder, well, where is this God of justice? Where is this God of hope? Where is the great healer as we're sitting here in masks? Where is he? And it could be easy to become very discouraged. It can be easy to think, we're just fooling ourselves. And this parable speaks to that and says, listen, God is, has a plan. And as, and as cliche as it sounds to say God is in control, God is in control. And there's a, there's a, there's a movement of history that is going forward. And there will be a reckoning at the end. There will be a judgment and we're not supposed to embrace that like, ha-ha, I'm glad that my, my nemesis at work will finally get his. But it's an assurance that God is not out of control. And you have to be a bit careful because if you take something like this parable and you get into it a little bit too much and you start, you know, Jesus says, well, the field is the world, the angels are the harvesters. You've got to be a bit careful though when he says, you know, the sons of man are sown by God and the sons of the evil one are sown by Satan because then some people could say, well, there's two different types of people in the world. There's those who are the good intrinsically made by God, and there's those who are intrinsically evil made by Satan. 
That's not the point Jesus is trying to make. We know that according to Scripture, we're all created in the image of God. We have a tendency to want to winnow ourselves uh, out and set ourselves aside and put ourselves over other people. But the point that he's making is that within the world, we grow up with the righteous and the unrighteous, and we're right together. And sometimes it feels like the righteous are winning. And in fact, rye, this, this grass that gets sown into the wheat, it, does, it grows taller than wheat. And that's one way you can tell it's different. It's taller, it's bigger, it's more robust than the actual principal crop. And so as Jesus tells this parable, it, it feeds this sense of us to within us that there is a place of justice. We don't want to take it so literally that we would start to say, well, there's people that are created by the devil, because that's not the case. And also, you have to be a little careful, because in the parable, God looks a little incompetent. He, like, he sows the field, and then he goes to bed, and then Satan comes out and does his thing. And it would appear, if you take it too much, take everything and try and link it up, you get this God that's a little bit like, didn't know what was going on. And that's not the point of the parable either. The point of the parable is there will be a judgment. There is a difference between right and wrong, and God will know. And that's the pretty simple explanation of the parable. What's funny, though, is as human beings, we tend to take something that is simple from God and complicate it. And in fact, Baptist history has an example of this. In Baptist history, this particular parable played out because of the, the, the growth of the, a free church as opposed to the state territorial church. The state church at the time, Baptists grow out of the Church of England, in case you're wondering where Baptists come from. They grow out of the Church of England. There's many different places where the people uh, in England were dissatisfied with the direction of the Church of England. And so you had these separatist groups. They're called separatists. They were separating out from the state church. And the Baptists are just one of them. The Mennonites are also a separatist group. Uh, some others you might know of. And what they were saying as, as they were separating out, the Baptists got into a big argument with the Church of England because the Baptists, one of the issues they had is they said to the Church of England, the church is to be made up of believers. The church is to be made up of those who are confessed believers in Christ. And the Church of England argued back saying, and this wasn't a very civil argument, just to let you know. Like, they would argue back by throwing people in jail or burning them, okay? <laughs> so, but the Church of England was... The theological part was arguing back saying, ah, but Jesus says in this parable of the wheat and the tares that you have the righteous and the unrighteous growing up together and that they will be separated at the end of the age. It's the part of the angels to do the separation. It's not the part of the church. And what was interesting is it comes down to this question, you know, is the field that Jesus is talking about the world or the church? And Baptist came down and said, he's talking about the world being together. And he says it. Jesus says that in the parable. The field is the world. And that, yeah, in the world, things grow together. But the church is to be made up of believers. Whereas, the, again, the state church said, no, the church is made up of anyone that's born in our territory. Whether they be believers or not, they're part of the church. And that's still the way that it is today. Territorial church, state church, tends to say, if you're born in this territory, then you're part of the church whether you ever confess faith or not. And so the ba so Baptists and other separatist movements said, no, the church is to be made up of those who are confessed believers in Christ because while you have the righteous and the unrighteous growing together in the world, the church is to be the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is to be united in faith and in Christ. So essentially, this, this little parable kind of has a, a little place particularly in, in our church's history.
And I would agree with that. I would agree that what Jesus is talking about is the world here. And he says that. The field is the world. He doesn't say the field is my people or the field is the community. He doesn't say the field is the church, even though this concept of the church, the way we understand it today, wasn't in place during Jesus' ministry, but he began it by having his followers. But one reason why I believe that, that, the, that the, he's talking, Jesus is talking about the world and not the church is because I remember as, as a young man, when this crop came in, I was just fascinated by it because it, it was almost more mustard seed than it was the peas that we wanted. And I remember taking a handful of it and looking at it and even then thinking, if I were to take this and sow this seed, I would get far more weeds than I would get good plants. In fact, so much so that the good would be choked out. And it reminded me that the church has to have a certain amount of purity in it in order for it to thrive. The church has to have the Word of God taught with as much purity as possible, without compromise as possible as that is, even though sometimes those teachings are not popular with the social, uh, the direction that society is going as a whole. Because if we are planting seed that is a mixture of weeds as well as the good seed, and we're planting that, pretty soon that, that bad seed is going to take over. Because weeds have a way of surviving. You know, if, you've, if any of you are gardeners, you know you don't have to try and plant weeds. They just happen. You know, it's, just, it's, almost, it's like some weird kind of, you can plant the, the cleanest seed out there and you're going to have weeds pop up. It just happens. You don't have to try and plant them. And if you don't even take care of those weeds, they'll do just fine. It's the good ones, you know, you have to always be taking care of and tending to try and get them to grow. And one of the things in the church that, that the church has struggled with ever since it's been founded is this place of compromise. Where do you compromise? Where are you just being stubborn for the sake of being stubborn? Where are you trying to stay close to the word? And what do you do when it's not entirely clear? And I have to say, I know that as a pastor, sometimes at the church, even here, it can be frustrating some of the places where, where we have said we're just going to stake with what is clearly in front of us, even though the rest of society might say, no, you should go a different direction or you should be willing to compromise on this. And, and all I can say to you is during those times is for you to try and understand that I'm held at a higher accountability before God and I will be held at a higher accountability before God as a teacher of the word than you will be. And I take that seriously. This is where the fear of the Lord starts to come into my life. I don't fear for my salvation, but I do know that if I somehow begin to mock God or try to say that I'm somehow smarter than God, then God will bring about circumstances in my life which will clearly state to myself, you are not smarter than God, and, uh, and this compromise is not going to be tolerated. And so just understand that sometimes where you say, well, I feel like society says we should do this or we should embrace that, I'm at a different place. I can't ever embrace, for example, same-sex marriage. I can't. The Scripture clearly does not. Society may say we should go that direction. You may even feel we should go that direction. I'm going to stand as accountable before God as a teacher. I can't because the Scripture is clear on that. And in places where it's not entirely clear, I have to have a good reason before sailing out into the sea of uncertainty when I'm at the harbor of, well, this seems pretty clear. You know, there has to be a lot of compulsion to move out of that safe harbor of the pretty clear to go into the sea of, well, I don't know. 
And so this kind of comes back to this idea of, you know, this is, what, this is how trying to sow the seed with purity, this is how it plays out for me. I don't know how it plays out for you. But it does affect your life in some way. The way you sow the seed into the world is a testimony to our church. It's a testimony, more importantly, to Christ. So the words you use, the actions you take, the way that you live your life is a testimony to your faith in one degree or another. And the purity of that testimony is going to glorify God. And you need to be aware of the fact that your life is a testimony. You are, many of you are the righteous that are growing in this field, and you need to shine, and you need to be fruitful as well. Also, I'm reminded by this, this uh, seemingly simple parable, is that if the church is going to be a healthy body, it needs to find a, oh, that, that's, there's my point there, plant it as purely as possible. If the church is going to be a healthy body, those parts need to find its community in Christ. One of the things I was telling you about, even though it's not really addressed here, is historically this parable was used as the question of, well, who makes up the church? Historically, this parable was misused by some to say the church is made up of just anybody that's born in a certain territory. Regardless of whether or not they make a confession of faith, they're part of the church. And more accurately, though, what this parable shows is that for the, that this is the case of the world. The world has the righteous and the unrighteous, and we grow up together. But the church is a different place. And that's one of the, the things about the church that is sometimes lost. We make up the community of faith. We make up the community of Christ. Now, we're not the only, only true church. Sometimes churches get kind of full of themselves, and they'll start saying, and we're the only ones. You know, just, just the folks who are watching online and the people in this room. We're it. That's not the claim we're making. But there is the church overall. And the church is made up of the community that finds its salvation, its object of worship, its focal point in Jesus Christ. And you can't be the church and have a different focal point than that. Uh, one of the reasons why our, uh, our mission statement is to reach the lost and make disciples is because those are the words Jesus told. That's almost exactly the words that Jesus gave us when he did the Great Commission. When he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go into all nations making disciples. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. That's how it's mostly written. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey every command that I've given you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. The purpose of the church is to share Christ, to bring the salvation message to those who don't know it. And for those who do know it, which is probably the majority of you here, for you to grow in discipleship. So then you, as an individual, and we as a church, can take the gospel to those who don't know it, share it with them so that they become believers, they can grow in discipleship, and so on and so forth. And the only way we do that is if we can remember where our center point is. And our center point is Christ. As soon as we get away from that, as soon as we put something else in place as either as important or even close to as important as Christ, then we lose it. And that's happened throughout history. There are some churches, for example, that put Mary as more the centerpiece of the church than Jesus. That's wrong. Some churches put a social agenda in the church as more important than Jesus. That's wrong. 
Some people put a particular theology. They really stand on one little fine point of theology and say, if you don't believe this particular fine point of theology, then you're not the true church. And that's wrong. It's about having this relationship with Christ, and he will guide us in all these other fine points, but we have to find our community in him. And especially at IBCD, we need to find our community in Christ because it's that common link we have in Christ that holds us together so that we can work out the issues that might be between us, uh, be they cultural or be they generational or whatever things that come into a church. Because you know as well as I do that things happen in a church. Sometimes there's conflict in a church. Sometimes there's uncomfortableness within the church. And if we don't have Christ as that center, they're just going to blow us apart. And the miracle of IVCD, and probably the thing that I brag about the most to my friends back in the States and to others about this church, and when I boast, I boast in the Lord like the Apostle Paul said to. But, uh, you know, I boast about this because I find it pretty fascinating that, that we are able to be together and stay together because of our love for Christ and what develops over time is a true love for one another as well as we learn to appreciate one another and trust one another and walk together. So I want to encourage you to, uh, to understand what your place is. In the world, if you're in Christ, you are one of these righteous. And yeah, sometimes it seems unfair. And are there going to be times when evil wins? Yes, there are going to be times when Darth Vader wins. There's going to be times when the bad guys seem to win. There will be times, maybe even generations, where it seems like unrighteousness rules. But we have a God that has a, has a long view of history. He has an eternal view of history. Not just a few decades, not just a few centuries, not just a few millennia. He has an eternal view. And this is where faith oftentimes steps in, and we have to trust that eternal view. And if you're also, sometimes when I, we, we do a sermon like this, someone comes back feeling, uh, feeling like their salvation is being questioned because, well, maybe I'm really one of the weeds, but I thought I was the son of righteousness, or, but now, I've, and now I think, oh, well, maybe I'm just one of the weeds. If you want to be saved, if you want, to come, if you want Christ in your life and you ask him to forgive you of your sins and you ask him to be the Lord of your life, the answer from God will be yes. So if you, now it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're made perfect right away, but you begin that process. God didn't empty himself of his glory to take on flesh and to suffer and to die for our sake so that it could become difficult for him to save us. He did all the difficult part. Now it's accepting him, trusting him, following him. So if you're here today and you're wondering, am I saved? Which is kind of a Christianese type phrase, being saved. If you're wondering if you're, if you're, if you're saved, the answer to the question is, have you asked Christ to save you? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sin? Have you given yourself over to him? Have you chosen to trust him and follow him as Lord? Are you walking in the place of attempted obedience? Even though you fail at times, there's the, the desire is to, to become more like Christ. Then you're saved. The Holy Spirit will come and answer those prayers of, Lord, forgive me and fill my life. The Spirit will answer that. So don't be sitting here spinning your wheels into this place of whether or not you're even saved when you should be down the road questioning the area of your discipleship instead of your salvation? Am I walking in discipleship with Christ? Am I growing in Christ? Am I that good seed that's flourishing in Christ? Most of you, that should be your question. Am I a disciple? 
Not am I saved. Now, there may be some of you that I just asked that question. Have you asked for forgiveness? Have you sought Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life? And the answer to that question, if in, the, in your mind is no, not really, then you need to address that. Then you need to address who Jesus is to you. Then you need to address what you believe about yourself and salvation and the cross and the resurrection. You need to go and get first things done first. And there are times in churches where people kind of head down the road of discipleship before they stopped at the stop of salvation. Uh, the guy that founded Methodism, his name was John Wesley. He was an Anglican uh, minister, a Church of England guy in the 1700s. And he had this holiness club that he was a part of at his school where they sat down, they memorized scripture, and they did all this stuff. And uh, it wasn't until he went on a missionary journey to the, the colonies in Georgia, he went over to the U.S., that on the way back, he, he ran into this group called the Moravians. And the Moravians were this very hardcore group about taking the gospel into the world. And Wesley had a lot of discussions with them on the boat back from the U.S. to England. He had a miserable time in the U.S. He never went back. And, uh, and on the way back, he had this discussion with the Moravians. And while he was in London, he realized, I have never really given my life to Christ. And Wesley gave his life to Christ after he was already trying to serve as a missionary. So it does happen sometimes where we put the discipleship cart ahead of the horse of salvation. But for most of you, I know a lot of you. And your question, your role, is in a place of discipleship. How are you growing in your faith? How are you applying your faith to your life? Where are you being the good and fruitful seed? So I want to make that clear because I don't want anyone walking away from this unclear about their position or where they're at. And the miracle of the salvation is that, you know, that, that, that ryegrass, that can turn into wheat by faith in Christ. And you can go from being that child of the devil to the child of God simply by a confession of faith as to who Jesus Christ is. Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Do you acknowledge your need for salvation? Do you believe that his sacrifice is enough to pay the price to allow you to start again, to be born again, is the Christian phrase, and be a new creation in Christ, becoming a true disciple of Christ? So there's a lot to these little parables of Jesus that he brings out there that he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to be looking at the other parables next week, but for that we'll end today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that within these parables we can see there are truths in there which are satisfying on a very basic level to our soul. And one here is just the, the, the teaching of judgment and accountability, that there will be an accountability, that the injustice that we see in the world isn't just going to run rampant without any kind of restriction. And then we can take some assurance in that. But I think for most of us, too, is that understanding that we do live in a world where we live shoulder to shoulder with the righteous and the unrighteous. And we do see the effects of that in the world. We see the effects of, of the righteous in the world. And we see the effects of the unrighteous. And Father, may we, as people who are saved, who are those sons of God, may, be we male or female, we have that equal inheritance before God. We are sons of God. May we be willing to pray for those around us that don't know you. Instead of just functioning within this world, just getting by, just growing, and just you know, being content to let you sort it out at the end. 
Because you've called us to reach into the lives of those around us, the righteous and the unrighteous. You've called us to be a light, a light for the righteous and the unrighteous. You've called us to be salt, salt in the world for the righteous and the unrighteous, so that they can know you, be drawn to you, and be saved by you. And Father, as a church, when we come to this place of who makes the church as your body of believers, Lord, help us to really demonstrate in a kind of concentrated way what it means to follow you, to love you, what it means to reach the lost and make disciples. And that the world would see the church something extraordinarily good instead of something extraordinarily dysfunctional, which unfortunately is often the case. And may you remove from us, remove from the church, not just from IBCD, but from your church. May you sweep through with a reforming movement of your spirit and remove from it those elements of false gospels, which are out there, false teachings, which are so prevalent today, false leadership, just everything that is false. We pray that you would remove it, purify it, as we head into later days, perhaps even the end of days. As we head into it, may we do so strong, with our eyes clear, our purpose clear. What is it we're here for in order to glorify you? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.